This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Two white radicals from Berkeley walked into the Vacaville Correctional Medical Center. It was part of the California prison system and housed inmates under psychological observation. Vacaville wasn't a pleasant place to be. Living conditions were appalling, and it was a hotbed of warring political factions. It was run by violent, corrupt guards. But the young men were serene and happy as they walked through the flickering fluorescent light. They loved coming to Vacaville. They got to see SinQ. SinQ sat in a plain prison room waiting for the meeting. As the two men walked in, his big almond eyes scanned their faces with compelling intensity. They gave him shy, warm smiles. And then, in his quiet, authoritative voice, Sin-Q launched into his lesson of the day on the use of political murder. The young radicals had started coming to Vacaville to teach inmates as part of a prison education initiative. But everything changed when they met Sin-Q. He was teaching them now, and they were going to help him start the revolution. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a podcast original. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA, the radical leftist political cult that became infamous for bank robbery, kidnapping, and murder. This week, we'll focus on the SLA's leader, Donald DeFries. In part two, we'll broaden our focus to the SLA's followers, their beliefs, and the crimes that brought them to the front pages of newspapers across America and the world. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, 
at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. The Symbionese Liberation Army was founded by 29-year-old Donald DeFries in 1973. Previously, he was a small-time illegal arms dealer and LAPD informant. But he underwent a political awakening while serving time at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California. The Bay Area was the center of radical leftist politics in the 1970s, but the movement was growing increasingly factional. Some groups wanted to use nonviolent protests to end racism and the Vietnam War. Others believed in a more militant approach. Donald's beliefs were different. He wanted a full-on revolution, and he was willing to do whatever it took to get it. His vision for change attracted a small group of young, idealistic radicals, who he first met through a prison education initiative started at nearby UC Berkeley. There weren't many of them. At the height of the SLA, there were only 12 members, mostly upper middle class and white. But every one of them paid for their time with the SLA. The cult came to a quick and violent conclusion less than two years after it was founded, in 1975. When the smoke cleared, all the SLA members were either dead, in prison, or facing a life as fugitives running from the FBI. Donald DeFries was born in 1943 in Cleveland, Ohio, to Mary DeFries, a nurse, and Louis DeFries, a toolmaker. He was the oldest of eight children, and there wasn't much to go around. But what really defined life in the DeFries household was Louis DeFries's temper. Louis was prone to violent rages, and Donald, as his eldest son, caught the brunt of that fury when it turned physical, which it often did. Louis hit Donald with baseball bats and hammers. He broke his son's arm three times, twice when Donald was 10 and again when he was 12. This, according to Lewis, was discipline. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Childhood abuse, according to abuse specialist Dr. Jim Hopper, can have lifelong consequences on both physical and mental health. Self-esteem can be deeply affected. And it can be difficult for survivors to see relationships outside of a victim-perpetrator dynamic. They can become controlling or even abusive themselves, treating other people like objects rather than human beings. But in his teen years, Donald started fighting back. Mary DeFries felt powerless to stop the cycle of violence in her home. Desperate for a solution, she decided her only option was to send her son away. In 1958, at the age of 14, he moved to Buffalo, New York to live with a local pastor. Reverend William L. Foster and his family were good to Donald. The Reverend saw a big heart and keen intelligence in the emotionally wounded young man. He hoped that the moral guidance of religion would help Donald work through his anger and find happiness. And Donald was receptive. He read the Bible with the hunger of someone looking desperately for meaning. 
Dr. Justin Barrett, Director of the Cognition, Religion, and Theology Project in the Center for Anthropology and Mind at Oxford University, explained that we're most likely to see meaningful patterns in the world around us when we feel out of control of our own destinies. Donald may have hoped that religion would provide him with a sense of order in the world after his father's abuse, which left him powerless. But religion wasn't the answer for Donald. It interested him, but didn't inspire him to pursue it with any conviction. Instead, he spent more of his time with the local gang, the Crooked Skulls, than at home with the Reverend. Research by social scientists at North Dakota State University found that when children are physically abused, they are four times more likely to join gangs as teenagers. This may be because violence becomes a familiar, legible language for these children. It may also be that because they lack support at home, they look for it elsewhere. Whatever drew him to the crooked skulls, Donald paid a serious price for his membership. In August 1960, at age 16, he was arrested for trying to steal a car and sent to the Elmira Boys Reform School in upstate New York. This was his first experience living in an institution. It's not clear what kind of treatment he received there, but it's likely that it was harsh. The purpose of reform schools was to educate and discipline juvenile delinquents. Their attitude was generally that these boys were bad and should be treated as such. Donald later described Elmira as a prison. In fact, in 1970, it was formally changed from a reform school into a men's prison. Donald's first experience with incarceration may have profoundly changed his personality. Psychologist Marika Lima and criminologist Martin Kunst, who researched the psychological impact of incarceration, found that former prisoners had difficulty with decision-making, trusting others, and engaging in healthy relationships. There's some overlap there with the effects of childhood abuse. While Elmira wasn't formally a prison while Donald was there, it may have had a similar effect on his psyche and perhaps compounded the psychological damage he'd experienced from abuse. Donald was released from Elmira after two years in 1962. He was still the hurt, angry boy he'd been when he'd arrived in Buffalo in 1958. But whatever discipline he received at Elmira seemed to have curbed his appetite for crime, for now at least. He wasn't interested in rejoining a gang. Instead, he wanted to try and live a quiet, normal life. So when he returned to Buffalo, he set his sights on marrying Reverend Foster's 14-year-old daughter, Harriet. He loved her, he said, and the Reverend and his family were the closest Donald ever got to a happy, stable home. Joining that home permanently may have looked very attractive. Donald was devastated when Harriet's parents turned him down, but marriage, an institution representing stability and prosperity, seems to have appealed to Donald in and of itself. After the Fosters crushed his hopes of marrying their daughter, Donald made his way to Newark, New Jersey. There he met Gloria Thomas, a beautiful 23-year-old mother of three young children. In 1963, after less than a year together, they were married. Donald would have three more children with her, but their marriage wasn't a happy one. Gloria cheated on Donald, and Donald periodically left her and their six children for months at a time, hitchhiking up to Canada and out to LA. 
After just one year of marriage, Gloria took him to court for desertion. She threatened him with child support payments if he ever left for good. It was an effective threat. Donald had struggled to make any money, drifting from one minimum wage job to another, often as a paint contractor or line cook. The DeFrieses were regularly on welfare, and just like in Donald's childhood home, there were too many mouths to feed. Donald might have found a way to improve these cycles in his personal and professional life if he'd had any good friends to talk to. But perhaps as a result of the abuse he experienced as a child and his time at Elmira as a teenager, Donald wasn't able to build meaningful relationships with friends or colleagues. He was emotionally closed off. His colleagues never even knew he had a wife and children, much less any of the family's issues. Donald was completely isolated. The only thing his co-workers remember him getting excited about was firearms. He liked to talk caliber, firepower, anything guns or bombs. There may have been a psychological reason for this passionate interest in weapons. Neuroscientist Dean Burnett explained that a mistrustful or paranoid psyche can lead to an interest in firearms. If you feel small, weak, or underachieving, feelings associated with low self-esteem, firearms can also be appealing. Mistrust, you may recall, is associated with the effects of incarceration. Low self-esteem, meanwhile, can stem from childhood abuse. Donald's later description of how he felt during this period of his life matches those descriptions. He said, I was slowly becoming a nothing. Weapons, according to Burnett, can provide feelings of power, security, and control. So Donald started collecting guns and bombs in his basement. He wasn't doing anything illegal with them. In fact, he wasn't doing anything at all with them. He just liked to own them, to look at them, to talk about them. Occasionally, he'd try out a gun in his basement. But just the possession of some of his weapons was illegal in itself, no matter what he did with them. The law was going to catch up with him eventually, especially because he was a young black man. In the 1960s, a black man was five times more likely than a white man to be incarcerated. In fact, the Black Panthers formed in 1966 in large part to protest police brutality against black men. But the first few times he got caught, Donald got off relatively easy. When he was 20 in 1964, the police arrived at his basement after he fired off a rifle. He was arrested for illegal possession of the gun and a homemade bomb constructed from 30 Fourth of July fireworks. But he got off with probation. The arrest did nothing to temper his obsession with weapons. He started carrying them with him outside, and in 1965, while he was hitchhiking, the cops caught him with a sawed-off shotgun and a tear gas bomb. He spent a few months in jail and then went home. After two more years, Donald decided it was time for a change. In 1967, at age 23, he moved to Los Angeles with his family. The DeFreezes needed a fresh start. Maybe L.A. would give it to them. But nothing changed. They were still in financial trouble. Donald and Gloria's marriage was still plagued by distrust and angry shouting matches. Donald still felt like a nothing, and he still sought solace in the power of bombs and guns. In June of 1967, 
after just a few months on the West Coast, he was arrested for possession again. This time, he carried two homemade bombs and a 22 caliber pistol. This was Donald's third arrest. Three strike laws, which drastically increase punishment after a third offense, wouldn't be implemented until 1994. But even in the 70s, a third arrest would normally have led to a long time behind bars. Donald was about to lose his guns, his freedom, and any semblance of control he had over his life. But Donald was willing to do and say anything it took to stay out of jail. Coming up, Donald DeFries transforms from a troubled, restless young man into an arms dealer. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In June 1967, a 23-year-old Donald DeFries was arrested for firearm possession for the third time. Because of his previous arrests, it looked like he was going to serve some serious jail time. But that's not what happened. He got off with probation yet again. This was mostly due to the support of the police officer assigned to his case, Arnold Kay. Donald told Officer Kay that he had suffered. He explained his crimes by blaming his abusive father and his lifetime of poverty. He assured Kay that he wanted to stay on the right side of the law, and he insisted to the officer that he had a warm relationship with his wife and children. He said that everything he did, he did for them. And Officer Kay believed it. Most of the story Donald told Kay was actually true. He had been battered by his father. He was stuck in a systemic cycle of poverty, but his relationship with his family was never warm. He felt chained to Gloria and the children, not devoted to them. Donald sensed that heightening the feeling behind those attachments would help him get Kay's sympathy. Kay knew Donald was troubled and struggled with his self-esteem. He understood the role Donald's weapons played in giving him some power. In his assessment of Donald, he wrote, The type of behavior encountered in the present offense appears to be the defendant's way of compensating for feelings of inadequacy and powerlessness. Donald was able to convince Kay that despite everything, he was a good man who deserved another chance. This looks like an impressive act of persuasion, but the line between persuasion and manipulation is very thin. Robin Dreek, former head of the FBI Behavioral Analysis Program, explained that the difference is intent. When you're trying to persuade someone, you win them over through honest reasoning and argument. Manipulation, meanwhile, uses unscrupulous, unfair, and sometimes untruthful arguments to get someone to agree with you or do what you want them to do. Whether Donald was using innocent persuasion with a few embellishments to a story or manipulation with the intent of fooling and controlling Officer K, he succeeded in talking himself out of prison for now. But his freedom wouldn't last long. He kept buying illegal weapons, and he started dealing them too. 
He needed some way to fund his hobby, and he still had his kids to support, although he wasn't giving them much in terms of affection or even time. Many of the weapons he bought and sold were stolen, although he wasn't stealing them himself. What had started as an illegal hobby was now more than that. He was drawing himself deeper into a life of crime. And it brought him back to violence, too. He was picked up by the police less than six months after his last arrest in December of 1967 for robbing and assaulting a sex worker. But those charges were dropped. Law enforcement in the 1970s was conservative and, like many institutions of the era, sexist. The welfare of a sex worker was low on their list of priorities. What did worry the police was the huge stash of stolen guns they found in Donald's car after the arrest. After looking at his record, they noted that he had an ongoing obsession with weapons, which seemed to be escalating. He was a case for the police psychologist. They needed to know if he was dangerous. The psychologist suggested imprisonment. He wrote DeFries's fascination with firearms and explosives made him dangerous. But Donald had a counter-offer for the LAPD. He'd hand over an arms dealer he knew in exchange for leniency. It worked. He got off again with probation. It was the beginning of a new career for Donald. He spent the next year and a half acting as an LAPD informant, as well as an illegal arms dealer. In exchange, he stayed out of jail on probation, despite an ongoing cycle of arrests for petty burglary and illegal firearm possession. Donald knew that as an informer, he could get away with it. It was in the LAPD's interest to have him work in criminal circles. That way, he could give them the names and addresses of bigger, more powerful criminals than himself. His work as an informer had another important effect on Donald. It helped him develop his ability to convince and gain trust. It was a muscle he'd started flexing with Officer K when he persuaded him, or perhaps manipulated him, into thinking he deserved probation, not jail time. As an informer on the streets, Donald had to project trustworthiness. No one could suspect that he was working for the LAPD. It could get him killed. He had to be able to convince everyone that he was a good, competent guy on their side, whoever they were. But internally, Donald didn't feel like a good, competent guy. In September of 1968, after one of Donald's many arrests, a prison psychologist determined that he struggled with deep-rooted feelings of inadequacy, As we discussed, that kind of intense insecurity can stem from childhood abuse. But luckily for Donald, he was learning to cover up his feelings of inadequacy. His ability to control his image was the only thing that helped him stay alive on the streets. For a while, he kept his issues to himself and remained active on the LAPD's informant list. Until 1969. In November of that year, Donald, still chronically desperate for money, tried his hand at a new kind of crime. Two days after mugging a young Filipino woman, he walked into a Bank of America with a check he found in her purse, made out to her name, Milagros Bacalbos. He stood to gain a sizable sum, $1,000. That's close to $7,000 in today's currency. The teller looked from the name on the check to the light-skinned black man in front of her, 
then back again. She asked him, who's Milagros? Donald blustered. He was nervous. This was the highest stakes crime he'd committed yet. And robbery had never been his area of expertise. The teller kept looking at him suspiciously. When he didn't respond, she turned away and called the police. Donald panicked and ran out the door. He pulled a tiny 32 caliber Beretta pistol out of his pocket. As the police pulled up, he opened fire, emptying his pistol. But he wasn't a great shot. Despite his obsession with guns, he rarely fired them. He didn't hit anyone. The police returned fire, shooting him in his left hand and left foot. He was arrested. And this time, he didn't get probation. The LAPD abandoned him to his fate. This was likely because the 32 Beretta he used in the firefight could be traced back to them. They'd let him keep it after they arrested another illegal arms dealer. Donald was supposed to resell it so they could arrest whoever he sold it to. He should never have used it. That was careless. The LAPD could no longer be associated with him. On December 3, 1970, 27-year-old Donald was sent to Vacaville, California Medical Facility for a psychiatric evaluation. He had a five-year-to-life sentence. After he served his minimum five years, a parole board would review his case and determine his remaining sentence length. This unusual system of indeterminate sentencing, followed by review, was common in California at the time. Donald had no idea how long he'd be behind bars, but he knew he shouldn't be at Vacaville for long. Vacaville was generally used to house prisoners for up to 90 days while they underwent psychological evaluation. From Vacaville, they were transferred to prisons around California. We're not sure what psychological treatment DeFries was given at Vacaville, but many of the methods used would not be considered ethical today. For example, prisoners were routinely subject to electroshock therapy. They were also used as test subjects for experimental drugs in an attempt to modify the behavior of more troublesome prisoners. One of these drugs was prolixin, an antipsychotic. Side effects included a catatonic-like state, nausea, loss of appetite, headache, and blurred vision so severe prisoners couldn't even read. Another was a nectin, a paralytic. A nectin slowed the heartbeat, caused respiratory arrest, and made the patient feel like they were dying. Dr. Arthur Nugent, chief psychiatrist at Vacaville Prison, said that a nectin induced sensations of suffocation and drowning. It was a chemical equivalent of waterboarding used to instill fear and obedience into the most difficult prisoners. Donald likely escaped the worst of the Vacaville treatments. Other prisoners remembered him as quiet and obedient, but he was at Vacaville for an unusually long time, two full years, until December 1972. And Vacaville was a harsh place that didn't shy away from violent discipline. The discipline was also applied extremely irregularly. Many of the guards were corrupt. They used their favorite inmates to deal drugs, reaping 70% of the profits while the inmates took 30%, and punished men they didn't like with solitary confinement. The guards smuggled in weapons for their favorite inmates, too. The prisoners used the weapons to settle their scores, often after political disagreements. 
There was constant political infighting among Vacaville's many radicalized black prisoners, just like in the world outside the jail's walls in nearby Berkeley. The violence and insecurity of Vacaville may have had a significant impact on Donald's already battered psyche. As we've noted before, according to Dr. Justin Barrett, we're most likely to see meaningful patterns in the world around us when we feel out of control. Donald, who felt like a nothing in his years in New Jersey and L.A., may have felt even more out of control at Vacaville. Maybe that's why he started looking for something to give his life meaning. Donald began attending meetings with the Black Cultural Association soon after he arrived at the prison. The BCA was a politically-minded, education-oriented group, which explored Afro-American heritage and stressed black pride. It brought in mostly white radicals from Berkeley for education exchanges and discussion with the prisoners. But for Donald, it would serve as an entry point to a radically militant mentality that only bloodshed could satisfy. In a moment, we'll hear about Donald's transition to an agitator for violent revolution. Now back to the story. 27-year-old Donald DeFries, father of six and illegal arms dealer, joined the Black Cultural Association of Vacaville Prison Medical Center after arriving at the facility in December 1970. And with the encouragement of the BCA, he started to read radical leftist literature. Another inmate remembered that Donald was always glued to a book about the struggle and black people's place in the U.S. He was still quiet. He didn't stand out as a revolutionary type in the chaos of Vacaville. Even amongst the smaller group of the BCA, which never boasted more than 100 members, he blended in. But he avidly immersed himself in the history and philosophy of the left's call for revolution. Most leftist radicals at the time agreed on a few things. They saw the government's systematic treatment of its black citizens as an overt act of violence. They thought many social norms were restrictive and oppressive, and they thought the war in Vietnam was inhumane, unnecessary, and wrong. But the landscape of black radicals was fractured by the early 70s. Martin Luther King Jr., who had preached a new world of equality and love in the 1960s, was assassinated in 1968. Malcolm X, another powerful leader of the black liberation movement, was assassinated in 1965. There was no distinctive leadership on the national stage and little agreement on what tactics would most effectively change the world for the better. Further complicating matters, the FBI, which saw political radicals as a threat to national security, had launched an effective covert campaign to infiltrate left-wing groups and sow seeds of dissent. Still, there was a strong will for change animating the left in 1970. It was a dangerous and exciting time to be thinking about politics and the future of America. Donald was new to all this. He'd lived through the 60s, but he was uneducated about even the basics of the radical left's complaints about American society. As he read and spoke with other members of the BCA, he found the meaning he'd never had in his day-to-day -day life. Abuse, poverty, and petty crime had worn him down. They'd made him feel like a nothing. But these new political ideas made Donald feel powerful, more powerful than his guns ever had. After a lifetime of being unable to form close, healthy bonds in his romantic life and otherwise, here was a theory that he could put his faith in. 
he'd finally found something that gave the tragedy of his early life meaning, a new purpose, a new sense of self. The BCA encouraged Donald to choose a new, Africanized name to match his new political consciousness. He picked Sinkyu after an African Mendi chief who led his fellow enslaved men in a mini-revolution on a slave ship in the 1830s. Although Donald mispronounced the name as Sinkyu rather than the original Latinate Sinke. Sinkyu felt the thrill of this new name and the power behind it. It made him feel like a leader, like he could lead his own revolution. Soon, his ideas grew more militant. Over the course of 1971, his politics started to align with black nationalism, which advocated for black pride and believed that the solution to racial inequality was black separatism, that is, the creation of a black state separate from the USA. This particular strain of radical ideology wasn't uncommon at the time, at Vacaville or around the country. The Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam were both associated with black nationalism. But even though some members of the BCA may have agreed with Sinkyu's militant tactics, they didn't see him as the one to lead their fight. They refused to support Sinkyu's candidacy for BCA chairman in the June 1972 elections. Publicly, they said it was because he was an overly militant black nationalist. Privately, though, they whispered that he was a snitch. Snitch was the worst title you could get at Vacaville. Just like on the street, it could get you killed. No one said it out loud to Sinkyu's face, but the rumor was telling. Sinkyu wasn't able to win over his fellow BCA members the way he had the street thugs and LAPD officers of his informant days. They didn't like this introspective, quiet man talking violent revolution. There was something off about him, something not quite right. But he did win over two BCA visitors. Willie Wolf, 21, and Russell Little, 23, were two of the white Berkeley radicals who regularly attended BCA meetings. And Willie and Russ, unlike many of the inmates, were impressed by St. Q. Something about his soft-spoken but intense manner won their trust. It's not clear why the young men were more impressed by Sinkyu than his fellow prisoners. It may be that the convicts at Vacaville were simply more suspicious than the young visitors. Inmates had to live with constant wariness at Vacaville. As we discussed earlier, incarceration can increase inmates' levels of mistrust. Willie, meanwhile, was an idealistic young white boy from an upper-middle-class family in Pennsylvania. Ross had a working-class background but he was also young, idealistic, and white. And both were passionate about prison reform and the struggle for racial equality. They saw the men at Vacaville as political prisoners in the U.S. government's war against black people. They trusted Sinkyu, in part because trusting him aligned with their political ideals. In addition, Sinkyu had charisma, and charisma can be incredibly compelling. We're willing to follow the people we find charismatic past our comfort zones. Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White, a professor of counseling, adult, and higher education at Northern Illinois University, said that when a person's charisma stems from real self-confidence, that person usually understands the value of their followers and treats them with respect. In this case, charisma can lend itself to great leadership. But charisma can be dangerous 
in the hands of the wrong person. Sometimes, charisma comes from a place of narcissism. Narcissistic people have an inflated sense of self-importance, but often this ego stems from extremely low self-esteem. As Deggs White put it, narcissists are driven to present themselves as bigger and better than real life by an unacknowledged fear that they have nothing to offer others in terms of substance or self. It's fairly clear that Sin Q had low self-esteem. Remember, he felt like a nothing. And when charisma comes from narcissism, it can be extremely dangerous. While the charismatic person may inspire others to follow them, they can't see the value of the people around them. Their leadership can end in total disaster. Whatever kind of charisma Donald had, in June 1972, it worked on Willie Wolf and Russ Little. When he was blocked from chairmanship at the BCA, Sinkyu created his own offshoot organization. He called it Unisite. Willie and Russ joined immediately. They drank up everything Sinkyu said. Sinkyu's politics shifted once he left the BCA for Unisite. In the face of his new eager white audience, he stopped talking like a black nationalist. He was still vocal about racism, but he stopped mentioning separatism and started to talk about harmony and symbiosis. Symbiosis, a term used in biology, means a close and mutually beneficial relationship between different kinds of organisms, or in this case, different groups of people. Sinkyu liked the term. He'd come back to it again and again. But his interest in harmony amongst all peoples had a caveat. Violence had to come first. He believed that political murders were a useful and important tool in the revolution against the fascist government and the police. He believed that violence was the only way to get people's attention. He had a fervent political purpose now. He wanted to act on it. But he'd need to get out of jail first. When he was finally transferred out of Vacaville on December 11, 1972, now 29 years old and two years into his sentence, he got his chance. Sinki was transferred to Soledad Prison, south of the Bay Area. His new peers were put off by him, just like many of the inmates at Vacaville. He seemed aloof and distant. But then they didn't have much time to get to know him. At midnight on March 5, 1973, Sinkyu went to work. A guard dropped him off at the Soledad Prison South Facility boiler room. And then the guard left to go drop off another prisoner. He'd be gone for less than an hour, but for that time, Donald would be completely alone. The South Facility was outside of the prison perimeter fence. There were no guards or gun towers here. Jobs in this part of Soledad were only given to inmates with good records. Sinkyu climbed the steps down into the boiler. He waited till he heard the car drive away. It was time to go, now or never. He ran. He made it to the edge of the south facility, scaled the six-foot fence, and then he walked free. There are varying accounts of how Donald got from the Soledad area up to the Bay Area, about two and a half hours drive away. He may have hitchhiked, or he may have gotten a ride from someone he knew. Either way, he made it up to Berkeley. And to Russ Little. It was risky to house an escaped convict. 
Russ worried that he was too well-known in Berkeley political circles to get away with hiding SinQ long. But he wanted to help. He respected and admired SinQ. He believed in his politics. So Russ found someone to house SinQ who wouldn't be a likely suspect if the police started looking for him around Berkeley, Patricia Soltizik, a 23-year-old UC Berkeley dropout. Patricia was a friend of Willie Wolf's. They bonded over their shared dedication to the prison reform movement. Willie likely took her to some BCA and even Unicide meetings. There are even claims that she slept with SinQ in the Vacaville conjugal visit trailers, which the guards could be bribed into giving to unmarried prisoners. But in the spring of 1973, Patricia was working in the UC Berkeley Library as a janitor and focusing her political energy on unionizing her colleagues. She was still on the fringes of the political scene in Berkeley, so it was unlikely that the police would come knocking on her door looking for SinQ. So SinQ holed up at Patricia's quaint Berkeley cottage. It was a pretty yellow color, recessed from a quiet street, an unlikely place for the beginning of a revolution. Patricia and SinQ lived together as lovers. She found him magnetic. He told her stories about his work taking little children to museums back in New Jersey. He waxed poetic about his time as a pimp. It had, he claimed, helped him understand the plight of women. Every story he told her was a lie. They were designed to elicit sympathy and impress Patricia, just like Sinkyu's earlier stories to Officer K about his loving relationship with his family. He never mentioned his wife and children now, and he had no idea where they were. He made no effort to contact them. Sinkyu was manipulating Patricia, but she, like Willie and Russ before her, was completely drawn in. At Sinkyu's urging, she decided to drop Patricia and pick a new name. She legally became Ms. Moon, originally an affectionate nickname given to her by another of her lovers, Camilla Hall. Ms. Moon embraced her new identity and aligned herself with Sinkyu's political beliefs. They were more militant than hers had ever been. Before long, she forgot about her efforts to unionize the library janitors and parroted Sinkyu's talk about the corporate state and the need for armed revolt. Throughout the spring and summer of 1973, there were often visitors to the Little Yellow House who joined in on the political conversations. They were all young, many of them friends or lovers who had been brought together by the prison reform movement and other radical leftist causes. Aside from Russ Little and Willie Wolf, there were Joseph Romero and Nancy Ling Perry, both 26 years old, and married couple Emily and Bill Harris, 26 and 28. There were five or six others who'd passed through too. A core group started to form. All these young idealists would eventually choose new names, many of them Africanized, like Sinkyu's. But for now, they were busy reading theory and writing up their own political manifesto. They drafted a declaration of revolutionary war. They were going to start a revolution, by any means necessary. Murder, bank robbery, and kidnap would all be fair game. Bloodshed was the only way to progress. Bloodshed and publicity.
Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back Tuesday with part two on the SLA. We'll discuss the violent consequences of SinQ's idyllic days of political discussion in the spring and summer of 1973, and the SLA's plans for an heiress named Patricia Hearst. For more information on the Symbionese Liberation Army, amongst the many sources we used, we found Brad Schreiber's book, Revolution's End, The Patty Hearst Kidnapping, Mind Control, and the Secret History of Donald DeFries and the SLA, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Paul Liebeskind. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Nora Battelle and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>